At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Is Houston really the riskiest city to own a home in? Plus, Mayor Whitmire has really upset a lot of people with one of his first major moves. And the beehive might be ready to sting me regarding Beyonce's new music. I'm breaking down the biggest stories of the week with Pulitzer Prize finalist Evan Mintz. It's Friday, February 16, 2024. I'm Rahil Ramzanli, and here's what Houston's talking about. Evan, what's up, man? Happy Friday. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to start with some controversy, okay? We're going to jump right into this. Beyonce released two new songs over the Super Bowl weekend, and people are excited. It's new music. Mm -hmm. I'm excited. I love it when Beyonce drops new music, but the controversy right now is, are those two new songs country music, or are they pop slash R&B? If you haven't heard 16 Carriages and Texas Hold'em, they have a real country twang to them. Hey, just in time for rodeo season, is it country or is it not, Evan? You know, I think Beyonce is an incredibly talented artist, so it's hard not to say, you know, that she isn't capable of doing country music. I listen to the songs. It kind of reminds me of like that clap, stomp, hey era of music, like the magnetic zeros, you know, um, kind of reminds me of like Casey Musgraves in a way. But no one's going to say Casey Musgraves isn't country. So why can't we say this is country, too? Mm. And by the way, stations in town, specifically 100.3 The Bull, which is a country music station, they've started playing 16 carriages on their station and classifying it as country music. In Oklahoma, a station did not play it. And guess what happened? The Beehive got a hold of them and they eventually caved and they started playing her songs on their country station. So don't let the Beehive get a hold of you. And I think they might get a hold of me. I'm going to say it's not country music. What? Why not? What's wrong? Okay, so here's why. I think just because you add elements of country music, it doesn't make it country music. It, like, I get it. It's It sounds like country music. But to me, it's still a pop song. And it's the same thing with Lil Nas X, right? When he released Old Town Road, there was a lot of controversy about is it country music or is it just pop? And to me, that one was pop as well. I don't know. I think your catalog has to be a little bit deeper to classify it as country music. Just because you make a one-off track doesn't make it country music. I know it doesn't. It makes no sense. I, I, I kind of get what you're saying, but I feel like, you know, if we all had amnesia and then woke up today and this was like the first Beyonce song we'd ever heard, you would think like, oh, yeah, this is a country song. But what you're saying is because she's done so much other work, this is just kind of her flexing on everyone else and showing that, yeah, I can make country music, but that doesn't necessarily make this a country song. I think this is where my argument falls apart. And I, I'll point it out. Like, let's say if Casey Musgraves woke up and wrote a killer pop or slash R&B song, would we classify it as pop and R&B or would we just classify it as country? And I think my argument dies because I think it would classify as pop. 
it kind of reminds me, and I'm cutting back a ways here, when the Beatles did Helter Skelter to show that, like, yeah, we can do, like, a Mm. loud, hard rock song like The Who just to show we can. And no one would say, like, the Beatles, you know, aren't a rock band. Uh, but it's just like showing their like total spectrum of skills. And, you know, that's what Beyonce is doing here. And I think we shouldn't let ourselves be constrained by the different terminologies. <laughs> like, it's a good song. It's a fun song. And and I got to say, if you're running a radio station, like, why not play Beyonce? Yeah. You know, if you're a country radio station, you need new music, play the one that everyone's listening to. Absolutely. All right. So I just wanted to talk to you, get your opinion about that. And I know our listeners are hyped up on the music. So good. It's hey, H-Town Zone's dropping new music. So let's get it. All right. We got new music coming out. All right, Evan, let's get to your biggest story of the week. What do you got? The biggest story of this week is that Mayor Whitmire may have awoken a sleeping giant on urbanism. So for those who haven't been paying attention, one of the first acts he took as mayor was to unilaterally undo a safe street infrastructure project at Washington and Houston Avenue. There had been a lot of crashes there, a lot of dangerous traffic. So under the previous mayor, we put in some medians and some better crosswalks so that, you know, people could cross the street so the cars weren't swerving around. It was like objectively best practice. But there's a car dealership over there. There's a church over there who didn't like it. They said, oh, it makes it harder for cars to turn into our driveways. Oh, it makes places where you can have homeless people hanging out in the median. And then so Whitmire comes in and undoes it. No hearings, no word to the local district council member, no nothing. And a bunch of people are really mad. The Houston Chronicle editorial board, which had endorsed him, is pushing back. There was like protest with just one day notice, a significant portion of people and city council members are getting calls from folks in their communities saying, what's next? Or is he going to go after the 11th Street bike paths uh, in the Heights? Is he going to go after the planned Montrose sidewalk project? And people are really pissed. And there's this big group of voters, sort of your Michael Skelly coalition of upwardly mobile young white voters who really weren't targeted in the mayoral election, who weren't in the Whitmire group, who weren't in the Sheila Jackson Lee group, who weren't activated throughout any of that, who are now starting to be activated. And so I'm curious to see what happens here. If kind of like, you know, the Tea Party after Obama was elected, are you going to have a big group of voters who really weren't pulled into the fight during election season, who are now during policymaking season going to be there? That one makes no sense to me. Explain how that's possible. Like Mayor Whitmire can just step in and say, oh, yeah, we're just going to undo this. Mm-hmm. I thought there's a checks and balance here, right? There, there's nothing, it seems like. And it, it obviously it showed that there's nothing. No. How did he get away with this? We have a strong mayor city. You know, the mayor can do it. He really didn't need approval from city council. City council, uh, thanks to new Prop A, could have, with three votes, tried to put something on the agenda to stop him. But I think that, you know, one, you've got a bunch of new city council members. They don't want to piss off the new mayor. Two, it just happened so fast. Nobody had a moment to plan. And there's a lot of really weird rhetoric in support of the mayor's move. You know, for example, a firefighter said that they like this because they can drive faster there. Same with police officers. A metro bus had hit the median. So folks are saying, oh, this is just a bad plan. But I've got to say, like, safety isn't made by firefighters going going 10 miles an hour faster than they would have otherwise. It's made by having streets where people don't hit cyclists and folks in the road in the first place. And you do that by building 
good roads. And if you have good roads, then you don't need police out there patrolling every single intersection. You automatically have folks who are driving smart and driving safe, and police can focus on the higher goals of, say, catching murderers. But Whitmire, I think, just did this as a, uh, a throwaway to some fans, a throwaway to voters and supporters, and also to flex his muscles and say, look, I'm the mayor and I'm going to do what I want. Now, could we see new plans in place? Could they put in a different style of median that's maybe, you know, a little bit better for everybody? Or is this now a done deal? This is a done deal. And that's what some of the city council members were saying. Like, can we like go back and tweak it? Like if people don't like this, we can always tweak it. But it's kind of maddening that you had this guy who ran for office on a platform of public safety and fiscal responsibility now do a thing that makes an intersection less safe and spends a bunch of money to undo a project that we just spent money on. What happens with this now activated group of people who are going to be like, hey, guys, can we please talk about this? Can we hear our voice? It's a little too late for the mayor, right? Like the election's done, obviously. But in terms of policymaking, how do you see this group being activated? I mean, you can see people showing up to public session, seeing them contact their city council members. And often the messages that city council members get are so quiet and so narrow to have a loud group pushing on this is going to be a thing that could freak them out in a way and get them to take some right moves. And it shows that people are watching, that you're not going to be able to get away with the next one without people getting engaged. And turnout in these city elections is so small. The fundraising is so low that just having a dedicated group like this can really shift things. All right. That is definitely a big story. Okay. I'm going to get to mine, Evan. And Uh-oh, it is risky to own a home in the city of Houston. According to claimguide.org, because of property crime rates, access to emergency services, the average age of homes, and the percentage of homes that stand vacant, there are different variables that can drive up insurance premiums, some of those being the ones I just talked about. But the biggest threats are, of course, flooding and extreme heat, which we have a lot of in the city of Houston. Now, because of that, we are the riskiest city to own a home in the nation. Now, fully 98% of homes in the Houston area are at risk of extreme heat. By the way, that 2%, where are they located where they're not at risk for extreme heat? That's that's kind of weird. Uh, Also, nearly two thirds are at risk of flooding in the next three decades. Uh, 9.2% of Houston homes are vacant, and that's a relatively high rate that can raise concerns among insurers. So this is more looking at like owning home insurance, getting good rates. And then also, look, it is risky, right? Because of the flood and because of the extreme heat, the extreme heat one, let's start with that one. Okay. Yes, there's extreme heat. Yes, we just had that big heat dome. But that didn't make it any more risky to own a home. Did it mess with your driveway? Did it buckle driveways? Yes. I don't think it messed too much with like roof problems or anything, right? Like that's what I'm getting a little confused about. Yeah, I always question sometimes you've got these websites putting out stats about the top 10 cities this or the worst 10 cities that. And you dive into it, you look at the stats and you go like, well, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like, yes, Houston is prone to flooding. We need to build the Ike Dike. We need to do more inland work. But 
You can look at cities in like southern Florida where they're built on top of stone where the water literally seeps up through it. No amount of building barriers is going to keep the water out or in places where you're right on the beach. And like if that hurricane comes in, like your house is gone, like there's nothing you can do about it. In Houston, we're prone to flooding, but the flooding can be addressed. We've done it, you know, in the past century. We're going to do it again in this century. And looking at heat as a risk to a home. Like, no, there's not like there's wildfires or something like the heat just means you really need a home with a good air conditioning system. That's what it means. Yeah. So I think these stats are bunk. Yeah. And then the flooding one, as you mentioned, that is something you can address. And, you know, I think everyone has PTSD from Hurricane Harvey, from other major floods. Right. And you always think about it like my old home wasn't in a flood zone, but I still got guess what? Flood insurance because I'm terrified. Right. Like I don't want to be caught without uh, flood insurance now after seeing all those images. So that's another one. The big takeaway from this story, which I think we need to talk a little bit more about. And we have kind of on CityCast Houston home insurance premiums are going up and they are Mm -hmm. going up at an astounding rate because of everything that's happened here in the city of Houston in the last few years. That's my big takeaway from this. And I, and I think that's something that does need to be addressed at some point. No, at a certain point, you've got to say that when home insurance prices move, that's a good thing because it's a sign to homeowners of where you should be buying a home and where you shouldn't be buying a home. If you're trying to buy a home in a high flood area and the insurance is high, like that should be a disincentive. It should also be an incentive to local policymakers to look at those areas and say, well, what can we do to get at flooding so people can actually buy their homes here? Counter to that, like my old home and my new home, they're not in any flood zones. You know, they're relatively new neighborhoods and my premiums went up 800 to 900 dollars like for no reason that's crazy just for no reason and when you ask them and it's more like look we've been paying out more there have been other things uh also companies just don't want to insure homes in the area for whatever reason Mm -hmm. so a lot of companies are leaving and it just creates this terrible terrible premium rise for homeowners which you just have to do it still and it sucks Yeah, it's a non-competitive market. You Mm -hmm. want a few more people coming in there to compete. And maybe if stuff gets out of hand, you'll see some new startups come in and say, well, we can insure for less than this. In the Houston Chronicle story, in 2022, the most recent year for which the Texas Department of Insurance has data, the average premium from homeowners insurance in the state was $2,374, a near 12% jump from an average of $2,100 in 2021. So everyone's starting to feel that that rise in the premiums. All right, Evan, let's get to your most overlooked story. What do you got? My most overlooked story is that the Thomas Scanlon building downtown is up for auction. And this is bad news and people need to pay attention to this. The historic white brick building in downtown is hitting the auction block after the owners defaulted on a $7.1 million loan. Now, I personally always loved this building because it's named for Houston's Reconstruction era mayor, Thomas Scanlon, who integrated the city. The guy deserves a statue, but all he's got is a building named after him. But seeing buildings go into default like this are a sign of weakness in Houston's commercial real estate sector. Owners across the city are looking for alternatives besides having commercial buildings. I mean, earlier this week, we heard Marissa Luck talk about a project to turn an office building into housing. You know, when you see this happen, it's a sign of weakness and you've got to worry, is the Houston economy on the right track or not? 
but I remember talking to some longtime Houstonians who worked in City Hall through the 1980s oil bust and up through the days of Houston being the see-through city because we had so many abandoned buildings. And they said the real sign of danger isn't when a skyscraper goes up for auctions. That kind of happens all the time. You have your ups and your downs. The real bad sign is if nobody buys it at auction. Mm. So I'm going to be watching this to see what happens. And by the way, that iconic building for listeners who are like, wait, which building is that? I always know it as a subway building, right? Like right by the mm-hmm. Metro Rail, that's where the subway is. I remember going there during Super Bowl weekend back in 2003, and we're like, where do we eat? I don't know. Let's just go to the subway building. And that's where we went. But that there used to be a subway there. I don't think it's there. Any- is it still there? That subway? I don't know. The last time I was, I remember eating in that subway yeah. too. Yeah, that's the subway that's building. That's the subway building. So like the actual sandwich shop, subway building, that's what we're talking about. But yeah, that is something to watch out for. And, you know, in that interview with Marissa, my big takeaway was like, yeah, you could convert some of these office buildings into residential housing and that could maybe boost up some of these occupancy numbers and all that, right? But my big takeaway was that companies just don't want old buildings anymore. They want those Mm -hmm. nice buildings and they're still building new corporate office buildings, all that stuff, but they just don't want old stuff. Yeah, like they want those high-end A-class offices, but you've got to worry about all those older buildings or like you drive along any freeway and just like a bunch of like 15-story towers. Who's in those? What is that? Okay, Evan, I need some help on this one because my most overlooked story, we have an update from Food Not Bombs. A U.S. district court judge on Wednesday ordered Houston to temporarily stop enforcing a law that requires city permission before anyone can serve more than five people in need on public property. And the Houston Chronicle has this story. The order marked a significant victory for Food Not Bombs, a group that has provided free meals outside of the downtown library for roughly two decades and received nearly 100 tickets for doing so since 2023. Now, this ruling is a part of the group's federal lawsuit against the city claiming that the food service is a form of constitutionally protected protest. To win a preliminary injunction, the lawyers had to prove that they were likely to win a trial and that irreparable harm could happen if the courts did not intervene. This is where I'm getting confused, okay? Food Not Bombs must pay a bond of $25,000. According to the ruling, that bond will be lower to $2,500 if the group agrees to provide trash receptacles and hand sanitizing stations, as well as ensure people do not block the street. And here's the big one. Those members who do serve food must attend a food safety training session. So a lot to unpack here, but I want to start with this bond. The big thing with Food Not Bombs is like they don't want government intervention. They don't want to do any of this. So Mm -hmm. are they going to have to pay the $25,000 bond to continue serving food? Because I don't see them taking these food safety training sessions. Like the idea from the city regulation is that if people are going to be feeding large crowds of people out on public property or even private property, you need permission and you need to show that you're doing it in a safe way and that you have a bond so that if some damage happens, like you can you know, recompensate people for what went down. But all this litigation is arguing that their actions are protected by the First Amendment. And I just can't wrap my head around that. And I know that other circuit courts have said that it is, but you're allowed to have uh, regulations on speech that regulate time and place and manner of doing things. Like you can't go around with the bullhorn at 1 a.m. Like cities are allowed to prevent that. And you're not allowed to discriminate on Uh, the perspective. You know, if you allow people to protest to say like, boo, we hate the Texans, you're allowed to protest to say, yay, we love the Texans. Mm -hmm. And so for this, I I just, they seems like the regulations apply to anyone who wants to feed people of a certain size 
no matter your perspective on it, no matter like what your like philosophical view is. So I just can't get at that. Like this seems like a pretty normal city regulation to me. Yeah, this is going to be interesting to watch because is the city going to fight back on this ruling? Like what happens now? Are they just going to sit down and say, okay, we're going to move on? I don't see that happening because uh, I saw on ABC 13, you know, cops were still out there yesterday and they were giving warnings instead of tickets. So this is about to get really messy, in my opinion. I mean, also, a lot of it comes down to whether the city wants to enforce or not. The law was originally passed under uh, Mayor Anise Parker, and her position was that we're just going to let them do their thing. Like, we're going to give, like, this cutout to food, not bombs, because we know they're not going to agree to it. But under uh, Sylvester Turner, they started to enforce it very strictly against food, not bombs. Now we have a new mayor, and maybe his attitude will just be, listen, we're going to let these guys do their thing. Uh, But part of the concern was that doing feedings in front of the library undermined the ability for other people to use the library. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sylvester Turner was trying to get them to move to do the feedings uh, in front of the police station. There's a big parking lot there. Like, I kind of get that. But maybe they can, again, find some other compromise and say, okay, not in front of the library per se, but maybe like a different park, a different place, just like right next door. I don't know. All right, let's get to your moment of joy, Evan. Let's end strong. What do you got? My moment of joy, and this is a new one, is that the Houston geothermal startup Fervo is going to receive $25 million from the Department of Energy to do geothermal work. And I am so happy about this because Houston, we do energy, we do oil, we do gas, but a lot of that technology doesn't really spin off well into other fields. Like, how are we going to use this technology for the future? Well, what this firm has figured out is that you can use fracking technology to make your own geothermal wells. Usually to do geothermal, you got to find places where there's really hot water underground and you can use it to power turbines in the same way you use hot water in any kind of other power plant. There's only so many places where you got a lot of hot water underground. So what they figured out is we can just go somewhere where it's hot underground, even if there's not hot water, even if there's not this special permeable rock underground, they can just drill their own, put the fluids in there themselves like you do when you're fracking and make your own geothermal power plants. So I am super excited to see this happen. They've done a few test cases. This is the first time they're really trying to bring it to commercial scale. Wow, that sounds really interesting and really complex, but that's good that, hey, we're, you know, finding new ways, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's this thought that a lot of the future of energy is going to be solar, it's going to be wind, but geothermal works all the time. It's kind of a passive thing. And if we can figure out how to make this work, then I think Houston is going to be the headquarters for the world's experts on geothermal. All right, that's going to be Awesome to see if that does happen. Okay, my moment of joy comes from the Houston Landing education reporter, Asher Layer-Small, who wrote a really good story on how districts across the region are helping more special education students. About 9,000 more students are receiving special education services across the region's five biggest districts, which is Houston, Cypress, Fairbanks, Katy, Fort Bend, and Conroe. This increase tops a previously largest jump which was roughly a 6,000 student increase in 2022 and 2023. So this is great. And this is showing that, 
you know, more Texas school districts continue to make slow but steady progress in emerging from the long shadows of a de facto TEA policy that illegally repressed a number of children receiving special education services. And a Houston Chronicle investigation in 2016 revealed that state officials encouraged districts for over a decade to limit their share of students identified for special education services to 8.5% or less. Roughly 15% of students nationwide receive these special education services. So it's nice to see that we are rebounding and more students are receiving special education services and that these districts are actually allowing them in without that TEA de facto ban almost. So I love seeing that reporting. Uh, I have talked to a few teachers across different districts and, you know, they're saying, yes, we're getting more students, but we still don't have enough teachers and we still don't have enough help here to give these services. So it's great that more students are being identified, but can we get more teachers to help out? No, it's it's good to see that we're finally making progress in this field. But like you said, you know, there's such chaos in HISD. There's such rhetorical attacks against teachers. The state didn't take the steps it said it was going to do in upping funding for teachers and upping teacher salaries. You know, we need to act like for the sake of having a good educational system. That's it. That's it. Like we need a great educational system. And if we can't get the proper funding, we can't keep teachers in the profession. It's going to be really, really hard. All right, Evan, that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for helping me recap this busy week and have a great weekend. Thank you too. See you next time. That was Evan Mintz. You can check out all of the stories we discussed in our show notes. That will do it for this week here on CityCast Houston. Our producers are Carleon Jones and Lizzie Goldsmith. Our newsletter editor is Brooke Lewis, and the host is me, Raheel Ramzanali. Our music is by the band All the Kimonos. We're off Monday, but we'll be back on Tuesday with a fresh episode for your feed. Thank you for listening, and I hope you learned something new.